And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Tuesday, May 16th, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian, our digital editors, Daisy Thornton and Darris Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, Senator Gary Peters on federal information technology priorities. Plus, military installations are also sites of American cultural heritage. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, the Defense Department is in the home stretch of a long project to modernize its electronic health records. The new system is called MHS Genesis, and even when the platform hits full operational capability, it'll never be really done. Holly Joers is the Program Executive Officer for Defense Healthcare Management Systems, that is the PEODHMS. She tells Federal News Network's Jason Miller and Jared Serbu about MHS Genesis as it stands now and how it's going to continue to evolve. We are now live at 75% of the military health system. That equates to about 140,000 users and service to about 6.1 million beneficiaries. So as we've gone through this transition, we're not just replacing a legacy system. It brings new capabilities to bear. Really excited about, one, creating a lifetime record under the single common uh, federal EHR. So that will enable patient-centered care. So it'll be a record about the patient, not where care is delivered. You know, from when someone assesses into the military or whether they're, you know, a beneficiary uh, that has come up as part of, was born into the military, so to speak, they will have a lifetime record all the way through service with Veterans Affairs. So it's exciting about what we can bring and gain insights about population health, medical readiness of the force, and really ensuring that we're taking care of our service members and their families, you know, making sure that they're ready to deploy and, and serve, serve the country. We've got some exciting capabilities like the mass readiness module. This is something, you know, well, we adopted a commercial system, and you might think, well, you know, what does mass readiness have to do with commercial hospital system? Uh, It's something that we were able to look at the modules that were within the existing system and figure out how to use them for unique military need. As you know, people go through readiness lines right before they deploy. We've got uh, recruits that are coming in to initial training bases. We've got cadets at the service academies that are uh, incoming, and there's a requirement to look at vaccinations and uh, in-process those folks for what they need in a relatively short period of time. I mean, sometimes seconds per individual. So we've been able to provide that capability that really the military health system didn't have before. They might have used paper and gone back into the records later. I know um, as people were going through lines, you know, they're trying to keep track of what what vaccinations people need because people are in various stages of, of vaccination as they're entering. The Air Force Academy used Genesis to process 1,200 cadets in six hours last year when they were bringing uh, online the new class of cadets. And I expect that that will continue to improve. The Air Force has shared, you know, that, you know, previously it would take up to several months to get that information in the records, and now they're able to get that right away. So that's just one of the unique capabilities that's really above and beyond what we would have seen with a commercial EHR. Historically, we were looking at a way to just document care. You hear it talk about, a lo- you know, the longitudinal record, but really MHS Genesis is more than that. It is a way to coordinate care, provides team care and, and looking at the information available to everyone who needs it on a healthcare team. And so with that, 
pretty excited about the health information exchange. We're now connected with about 65% of private sector hospital networks, and this year we're going to expand to over 90%. And that really makes the fax machine go away. It's pretty exciting that, you know, when folks go out maybe to a network provider, that provider will be able to see what was done in the military health system and vice versa. You know, we'll be able to pull those that information back. And we can do that today. And it's really game-changing to be able to not only see that information for continuity of care, but really prevent, you know, tests having to be reaccomplished because that information is not available. So excited about that. I could probably go on and on about all the capabilities we're providing. So I just wanted to, I, don't, I want to make sure I have time for your questions, but uh, happy to jump in on, on more of the capabilities as we go. Well, there's plenty to catch up on. I'm going to go back to a few things, but I'm just more excited that the fax machine may actually go away. We've been hearing about the end of the fax machine for, for decades now, but but sounds like we're, we're one step closer. We're making progress. Not making quite progress. all the way there yet, but yes. On the rollout itself of, of MHS Genesis, you said about 75% of the military health system has about 140,000 users. That final mile, that final 25%, is that the hardest 25% or is that just, hey, you got to do them in groups and, and this is this last 25%. Is that some of the uh, OCONUS rollouts? How do you get to that final 25%? Yeah, that's a good question. So I'll talk in terms of CONUS and OCONUS a little separately. So we are nearing our final waves for, for CONUS. And really that was, we chunked it into work of anywhere from three to 8,000 users per wave, because you want to make sure that you can really give the attention needed for uh, adoption, training, at elbow support. We have something called the Pay It Forward program where we bring users of the system to help their peers uh, as they're going through the go live. Um, really great learning from colleagues. And we want to make that really a manageable process. So we do chunk it into waves. We've got the National Capital Region coming live here toward the end of March. And then our wave Wright-Patterson, which gets us kind of the rest of the Midwest early this summer. And that really rounds out our uh, CONUS deployments. And so OCONUS, as you mentioned, you know, our, is the last mile hard? Yeah, OCONUS uh, presents some challenges just with your crossing oceans, right? And you're talking about ones and zeros, traveling from a data center across an ocean. Um, you might not always have as high a network reliability in some austere locations overseas. So it really presents some logistical challenges for us uh, that we're working towards. So pretty excited about going to uh, the uh, European uh, area and the Pacific. But um, yeah, I would say that logistically speaking, uh, they are the most challenging. But across the board, every wave really brings some unique challenges, right? The process we go through is the same each time. But we bring on new capabilities. For instance, when we went live in San Antonio, Brook Army Medical Center has one of the military health systems, you know, has the only level one trauma center. So that really required us to hone our workflows for trauma support. Um, and they have some unique capabilities that they support uh, the surrounding county in San Antonio. So when it comes to, you know, administration and keeping track of patients, right, that provided um, some unique challenges. So every wave has something a little different to it that we need to um, make sure we are enhancing or, you know, keep keeping that continuity of, of care. But yeah, the last mile for OCONUS certainly has some technical challenges. This is Jared. And let me let me just pull on that thread a little bit, kind of along the theme of if you've seen one MTF, you've seen one MTF. That that upcoming wave that's going to include the NCR, of course, you've got Walter Reed in there, you've got Fort Belvoir in there, which I think is probably among the most 
you know, complex mixes of types of care in one facility out of everything you've seen so far. So maybe say a bit about what you've learned through the deployment process up to this point that, that makes you feel like you can implement Genesis across all those different types of clinical modules that you're going to need to implement at a place as, as complex and large as Walter Reed. Yeah, um, you know, that's a, that's a good question. I think first let me say that, as I said, you know, we, we come into unique characteristics as we've learned, but we have to remember as we get better and better at deployment, it's the first time for each site. So we always take the tact that, you know, even if it's our eighth wave or our tenth wave, it's the first one for that, you know, that location. So we have to treat it that way. So really understanding what their as is, what their current state is, how they transition to new workflows. Because remember, it's not about the IT system. I mean, yes, we're delivering a platform, but it's really about how we go to uh, a standard approach to care. Holly Jowers is Program Executive Officer for the Defense Healthcare Management System. Hear more at federalnewsnetwork.com slash askthecio. Still to come, military installations are also sites of American cultural heritage. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Army camps and bases often feature architecture worth preserving. One example is Camp Dodge, an Army National Guard training facility in Iowa. Its construction and facilities management staff won a Pentagon Award earlier this year for restoration of its 1907 gatehouse and perimeter. We get more now from Facilities and Management Director Colonel John Perkins. Colonel Perkins, good to have you on. Thank you, Tom. And just tell us about Camp Dodge itself. There's some significance of it historically and to the state of Iowa. Camp Dodge is the only military uh, facility in the state of Iowa. It is actually a state military facility currently. It was established in 1907. Our first building actually went in in 1909. In World War I, we were the 13th national cantonment to uh, help build up the forces for World War I. I went back to the state, and uh, we were again federalized in 1942, and then after World War II, we've been a state facility ever since. And where exactly in the state is it? So Camp Dodge is just north of Des Moines, which is right in the center part of the state. Got it. So there's Des Moines on one side and cornfields around the other three sides? Well, yes, it, it is Iowa. Yes, you're right. correct. Yeah, well, they make good corn out there. And you are the facilities director, but you're National Guard, so you've got kind of two hats, right, civilian and military? That's correct. So I'm a dual-status military uh, technician, so GS-14 day-to-day. I'm also a colonel in the Army National Guard. And as with all federal technicians who are in the National Guard, our regulation requires us to wear the uniform. So we're pretty indistinguishable. All right, understood. And what happens there? And how large is the place? How many people come and go every day? What, what's, uh, give so us Camp a sense Dodge of... Camp Dodge has about 5,000 acres, so it's not uh, large from a terrain standpoint, but we're between the third and fifth busiest post as far as the National Guard post and the uh, National Guard inventory. We regularly train between 350 to 400,000 soldiers a year. We have several activities here, such as the National Maintenance Training Center, a uh, center that, you know, does some combat simulation on the computers. And so there's a lot of soldiers that come through here, as well as Marines, Army Reserve, most of your reserve component in Iowa, because we have the only ranges in Iowa also, as well as we also help train some civilians, such as, or they use our ranges, such as law enforcement and police. 
Got it. And so there are quite a number of buildings and facilities you have to look after then. Yeah. So on Camp Dodger, about 375 facilities on Camp Dodger alone. Golly. And some of them go back, you say, is the 1909 building still there? Yes. Yes. The 1909 building is there. It was actually a powder house. It was uh, constructed by a tile with all non-sparking surfaces. So it goes back to that time frame. But the offense actually does date from 1937. So Okay. So this project we're talking about that won an award, the award was for what? Sustainment and for what? Yeah, it was, it was a restoration and a preservation of a cultural artifact. So, you know, we have both an environmental heritage we're very proud of here at Camp Dodge. We have a lot of species on Camp Dodge we take care of. We also have a lot of cultural artifacts. So in this particular case, this fence was built as part of the CCC, the Work Progress Administration, sure. the Civilian Conservation Corps in 1937. So these were people that did not have jobs. They brought them in. It was all done by hand labor. They learned a skill, learned a craft. And we thought it was worth preserving. It's not on the National Historical Register, per se, but it is Historical Register eligible. And what's very important to me is a lot of those young men that came and did this work, they later served in World War II. So we're talking about an artifact of the greatest generation. And the fence has 99 pillars, and these are not just wooden posts, are they? No, no, they're, they're not. So each pillar is about three feet by three feet square, about four feet tall, and they are made of Indiana limestone about the inch to two inch thick pieces, and they're laid in there and mortared in place. So 100% of it was handwork. To include the foundation, the foundation of the pillars were not poured in concrete we discovered during the restoration. They were actually bigger pieces of limestone, all cemented by hand. Interesting. So some real craftsmanship there. We're speaking with Colonel John Perkins. He's Director of Construction and Facilities Management for the Iowa National Guard. And then in addition to restoring those pillars, you also had a gatehouse? Yeah, so the gatehouse was part of it. Uh, very interesting. It had some hand-forged iron elements into it. It replaced a former gatehouse there off of what used to be the main entrance to Camp Dodge. And very looks almost like a little castle style. But uh, again, it was those uh, young men back in the 37 putting it all together. And what was the state of it when you decided to restore it? So it was solid. Some pillars had been hit by uh, cars that had gone off the road over the years. There was cracking. There was grass growing up in there. Rocks had split out of it. Mortar had fallen out of it. And really, it was really a decision of uh, letting such a cultural resource go or putting a little bit of money back into it to preserve it for the next generation. And what did it take to do the restoration? From a, a standpoint of work, they literally had to go back and do handwork. They had to cut out the stones, grind out mortar, replace stones interior to that, Recement things using mortar that was the same color, a cement on top of the same color to cap it, and then it was cleaned in an environmentally safe manner with a pH-neutral power wash and replaced some of the wood elements on it, restored like new. Wow, and this is true of the gatehouse also? That's correct. And were concrete foundations put under the pillars or did you just simply restore the bases that were there from the 30s? We restored the bases that were there. So we, in a large part, we dug down where we had to. But really, it, it was it needed to be repaired, but the stone, mortar, it lasts a long time. It was, it was really pretty solid, just those elements that had to be redone. Yeah, like your own pyramids right there on Camp Dodge. And uh, After this restoration, they will outlast me. <laughs> and who did the work? It was a, a company, uh, I, I can't remember the name, unfortunately, out of Wisconsin. They did this restoration work. A local architecture and engineering firm named Snyder Associates did this. And it's very gratifying to us because the company came in and they hired a lot of local labor and taught some skills when they put this back in there. And again, it was very much a labor-intensive process. Sure. And how did you pay for it? 
So this was a combination of uh, federal funds and state funds to do this, which is pretty common in uh, a National Guard post to have that mixture of funds. So there is federal money, meaning that the Pentagon at some point ultimately feels that this type of activity to preserve these heritage sites is worth it. Yeah, it is, because it, it, it does represent our post. If you go through a, a military facility, whether it's a, a Fort Leavenworth, you'll see some history preserved. Now, that being said, we do have to make some hard decisions on whether we maintain a building, whether it's culturally relevant is one factor, whether it's architecturally relevant, or it's really worth restoring. We have had some cases where we've had some World War II buildings that were temporary World War II buildings that we just tore down some last year, that they're neither architecturally relevant and uh, they had just exceeded their lifespan. So we want to spend our money frugally, but there are uh, worthwhile to preserve some things. Yeah, it's like the Navy Annex in Washington. I think it was supposed to be torn down in the 50s, and it lasted up until about the 80s till they finally removed those buildings. I guess they were right. historic in the minds of the people that had worked there, but as structures, they weren't terribly significant. Right. And as a National Guard base, as a member of our community, what I found is during this restoration, this has hit the community newspapers. I received a lot of comments in the community. People have stopped me. So it's also an icon of the community. So we have to be, as a federal member of a community, we have to be very, very aware of that also. Yes, because you said that sometimes a car has hit the stone pillars over the years, which means there's a community and roads and traffic going by Camp Dodge, so the people maybe locally have adopted it. That is correct. We have a great relationship with, with, with our community, and we consider ourselves a part of the community and, and as well as an asset. And what's next on your list to possibly restore and refresh? So we're finishing up a multi-multi-year restoration of uh, one of the only two existing World War II induction hospitals left in the United States. While we're restoring it the outside to look what it looked like with the appropriate windows and the appropriate roofing, however, inside are the most modern classrooms to train our soldiers and airmen that you've ever seen. So we believe we can accomplish both, maintain that readiness, reuse a structure without having to build a new one, which is good for the environment also, but preserve the heritage on the outside. Do you have any really nice cannons or some old maybe Army Air Corps aircraft there too? Uh, absolutely. If you look up the news, we just flew back an F-86. Uh, wow. Uh, it, well, we, a Chinook helicopter picked it up off Camp Dodge, flew to a paint facility in the Air National Garden, Sioux City, and uh, just delivered it back on post, and it's now back on display in all its glory. Excellent. Well, sounds like you got a great operation going out there. One of these days, I'll have to ride out. Colonel John Perkins is Director of Construction and Facilities Management for the Iowa National Guard. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. And we'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, what would happen to contractors in case of a debt default? But first, Senator Gary Peters of Michigan on federal information technology priorities. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Tammen here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Tammen here on Federal News Network. Senator Gary Peters of Michigan has been a supporter of federal IT modernization and cybersecurity. Recently, at a day-long event, Peters was interviewed by Chamber of Commerce Vice President Jordan Crenshaw. 
Peters discussed several IT issues of or affecting the federal government, including artificial intelligence. He started with the Technology Modernization Fund, why he pushed for it, and the progress the TMF has made so far. If you look at the work that's being done right now, some of the uh, grants that are out there, you've got uh, the Veterans Affairs, the VA, uh, is providing uh, now enhanced services to veterans to be able to streamline the processes to get in there, but it required modernization of all of the IT backup that they uh, have. Uh, in in my, the area of uh, Homeland Security, which I work a great deal on as, uh, as chair of Homeland Security, uh, a big part of the Department of Homeland Security is to be able to be connected with first responders on the ground or local police that are always the tip of the spear when it comes to, to keeping us safe. Uh, but how do, you, how do you facilitate that communication, especially sensitive material and sensitive information that has to get out? The Modernization Fund's allowing us to do that with the uh, Department of Homeland Security. Uh, the GAO is able to, or the GSA rather, the GSA is able to modernize ways for, uh, for customers or, or taxpayers who want to be able to find out what government services are available are going to be able to be streamlined now. So uh, the, the importance uh, of it cannot be... Uh, Understated, it is, uh, it is or overstated. It's really critically important uh, for us uh, to do that. Uh, the billion dollars, uh, still, we still haven't spent that all. We want to make sure we have oversight that is done wisely and and uh, and done in a way that actually is delivering uh, services to uh, taxpayers. Uh, but I think we're going to probably have to have increased investments uh, in the future. But that's down the road. Let's see how this uh, moves forward. But we have a lot of ground to cover. Chairman Peters, even with programs like the TMF, we see federal agencies and state and local governments routinely request resources to modernize and secure their systems. How were your pre- previous accomplishments, including passing legislation like FedRAMP reauthorization and funding you've secured, assist with this ongoing issue? Um, and, and can you also discuss what we need to update the Federal Information Security uh, Management Act to address these challenges as well? Well, it's all... You know, all uh, uh, Related to cybersecurity, clearly, but uh, the FedRAMP is also, as we move towards uh, the cloud, how do we kind of facilitate that? But we were able to move legislation uh, last uh, session that really covered uh, three areas. Incident reporting, which I'll talk about, which you mentioned uh, uh, in the opening, so that we have better situational awareness when it comes uh, to cybersecurity. Uh, we also uh, had the FedRAMP legislation that did pass, is signed into law right now. And, and that's uh, important for the government to continue to move towards cloud computing, to, to, to use that as a more secure platform, uh, but also to bring more competition. One thing that was a problem when it came to cloud, though, there wasn't, I thought, uh, and others thought, there wasn't sufficient competition, and that smaller companies should be able to bid and be a part of that ecosystem in the federal government. So the FedRAMP uh, law uh, creates a process that's going to make that easier to go forward. It's also going to be able to authenticate so you know that you've got secure cloud systems, but also allow more companies to participate. And ultimately, that's good for the taxpayers. The more competition brings down the cost uh, going forward. So uh, we're really happy that that was signed into law. The FISMA that you uh, mentioned is uh, still is out there. Uh, we weren't able to get that passed in the last Congress. I'll tell you, it's really a priority for me to get it done as quickly as possible now that we're back, because we know the threats are out there. Uh, we know what happened with solar winds, what happened with that uh, attack. And, and it was quite apparent with that attack that we had different silos in government. They weren't talking to each other. There wasn't uh, the kind of quick response to understand exactly the scope of the attack. What was the problem? How does it work? And so we need to, we need to do a much better, better job uh, going forward. Uh, and, you know, it's, some of the, it's long overdue as well. It's, this is decades that it hasn't been updated, and that was before we had CISA. As you mentioned, CISA was before we had a national cyber director. The, the landscape looks a whole lot different now. 
And that's why the FISMA legislation is, uh, is so needed, and uh, hopefully uh, we'll be able to do that in a bipartisan way. I've uh, had uh, conversations with my colleagues in the House, uh, the chair of the two relevant committees. Um, I think we're all, all aligned that this is something that we want to move quickly and hopefully get it signed into law early. We'd really want to hear your perspective on, on, on autonomous vehicles on the roads, and, and what are your priorities in the 118th Congress uh, surrounding AVs? Well, it's, a, it's an incredibly important issue, not just for, for Michigan and the auto industry, but really for the, for the country uh, as we move towards uh, self-driving cars, and we're hoping to put a framework to be able to make sure we have uh, the oversight necessary, but also make sure that the technology is, uh, uh, is free to go as fast uh, as it possibly can uh, and develop. And, and the reason I'm so excited about self-driving cars, which is the future of mobility and all of our automakers, that's where they're investing an awful lot of money in, the, probably the number one benefit that I see is safety. I mean, when you think about it right now, uh, roughly 40,000 people die on our highways uh, every year, 40,000 people. And and probably 95% of those are human error. Uh, and the engineers uh, who are working on self-driving cars think we can eliminate, not all, but most all of that. So it literally will save tens of thousands of lives. It's a huge, huge deal. It's also a big deal from a competitive standpoint. We're in a race here in the United States with our with uh, Chinese and European uh, manufacturers, other Asian manufacturers, uh, and whoever gets there first is going to have a significant competitive advantage. And I want to make sure it's... American companies uh, that are leading, so we have to have a, a framework that works for them uh, to, to go forward. Uh, I am excited about how fast is going. I'm going to do a little plug for General Motors here, a hometown uh, company that has vested a, an awful lot uh, in this, and their cruise is their subsidiary uh, doing self-driving cars. And they are now operating, uh, many of you may not know, in, uh, in San Francisco uh, in a commercial way. And now General Motors is operating uh, 24-7 uh, in testing, but they're hoping to expand that as they continue to prove out the technology. So it's happening very, very, very quickly. This technology isn't going to be yours. We have to be out there. We have to be out front. And, and I'll just say one of the most exciting uh, things about the technology, too, and engineers tell me, is that uh, this is really the moonshot for artificial intelligence, is that when you have AI systems that can pilot cars through complex city environments, take in all the data that comes in and put that together to do that safely, that means AI is ready for prime time in about every single industry. So uh, our competitors know the autonomous vehicle systems is really tied to artificial intelligence, and AI is tied to the entire digital transformation. And so these things are, are closely aligned, and I want to make sure it's here in this country. What advice would you give to CIOs and others working in, in procurement for IT and the government on how they can modernize going forward? Well, I just mentioned a couple things, and, and before I, I get into that, too, I want to say that I, want to, I know we have a lot of CIOs. We have folks who are experts in technology here in the audience, and, and I want to, you're here listening to me today, but I really want to spend more time listening to you uh, and, and reaching out to my committee. Uh, we we, we are, will continue to work uh, particularly on cybersecurity issues. We have other legislation we're in the process of working on uh, right now. Uh, and, and I think uh, if we think about homeland security, there's no question one of the biggest threats we face to our homeland are, are cyber threats that we have. Uh, and we have to lead in. We, we know the landscape changes constantly. We also know that if you're a cyber security professional, uh, you have to get it right 100% of the time uh, versus the bad guys only have to get it right once uh, after attacking. So it's an incredibly difficult situation. Uh, and we want to make sure that uh, we're working in a, in a whole of government approach. And so one thing that I want to encourage folks here, uh, uh, especially those in the private sector and others that are involved in 
cybersecurity issues is to, is to work with CISA in our cybersecurity infrastructure security agency. Uh, we, we want CISA, it's, it's not a regulatory body. Uh, it's not a law enforcement body. If you have a ransomware attack, you'll call the FBI to have help uh, with a ransomware attack, although we'd hope you'd call CISA because we want to have CISA to actually help an entity that's just been hit by an attack. How do you recover? How do you get back up on your feet quickly? And how do you continue to safeguard your, your data and uh, systems? Uh, so I'd hope that uh, you would look at uh, CISA as a resource, and as you're doing that, if they're not a resource, I want to know. I want to know why they aren't, uh, what, where are the shortfalls, how do we make them work better? Uh, because uh, you know, we know that um, the, 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 this, this threat is persistent, and oftentimes what I worry about a lot in the morning is that uh, big companies are able to have very sophisticated cyber operations. We're hoping the federal government uh, continues to improve. They do a good job of continuing to improve our, our protections. But I'm worried about small businesses in particular, folks who don't have the, the resources to, to be engaged in that. And, and as all of you know, the bad guys always look for the path of least resistance, and, and you've got to be able to protect the whole of society. And CISA, I think, plays a role in that, uh, but in a way that uh, is, is helpful. The other thing I would uh, uh, recommend folks to take a look at our state and local grants that are part of our uh, inf bipartisan infrastructure. Uh, these are grants uh, to help uh, local governments, state governments uh, modernize their programs, strengthen their cybersecurity. Uh, those grants are, are available now. I think the state of Michigan um, has already received around 5 or $6 million uh, for that, uh, but there's more resources uh, to be able to strengthen uh, those systems, uh, which I think is, uh, is critically uh, important. But, but again, um, uh, it's important that we lock arms and understand that we all have to work on this together. We, we play a piece. We're not the solution, but we can play a big piece in the overall security of our country. Michigan Senator Gary Peters speaking at a recent Chamber of Commerce event in Washington. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come... What would happen to contractors in case of a debt default? This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Debt default would seem in some ways like a government shutdown, but it's not. In fact, the government is fully appropriated for the rest of fiscal 2023. It's money to roll over T-bills coming due that the government would not have. None of this is to say things would be hunky-dory for contractors. Here's the president and CEO of the Professional Services Council, David Berteau. And David, you've been watching this carefully. So what happened with contractors? I mean, the government wouldn't be able to pay bills is what we're hearing from the Treasury, from Mrs. Yellen. That's right, Tom. And you point out at the beginning of your commentary there, we have an abundance of appropriations, right? I mean, we've got a huge appropriation in FY23. Most of those funds are not yet obligated. Actually, the Constitution is quite clear on this point, and the Supreme Court even ruled about 50 years ago in support of this. The Constitution, Article 1, Section 9, Clause 7 says, essentially, no funds shall be dispersed from the Treasury except upon appropriations. What happened under Richard Nixon, because you remember he actually tried to rescind those funds and not spend them, and the Supreme Court ruled that the reverse is also true. If Congress appropriates it, you have to spend it. And so the Constitution is clear, and the history and the courts have ruled very clearly in this regard. If we were to have a default, it would not be a lapse in appropriations, and therefore the procedures that the government has in place governing a government shutdown would not only be irrelevant, they might even be counterproductive. But what we see already is that agencies 
are thinking about it and talking about it as if it's a shutdown. We're hearing conversations of who's essential and who's not. Well, that's not a choice that the government has to make. In fact, it goes even further. The Anti-Deficiency Act says you can't donate time to the federal government. You have to be paid for it, right? Well, okay, how do you require somebody to work if you're not paying them, even if the contract's already in place? It's potentially a real mess here, and we need to see some clear guidance pretty quickly to sort this out. Right, because agencies then could go in the wrong direction by either asking for contractors to keep working and we'll pay you later wrongly, assuming that they can't pay the contractors, or just shut things down that are any contract that may not be directly related to just operating and keeping the agency going. Right. So what's the first question in a shutdown you ask yourself? What's my source of funds and is my work under the contract affected by the lapse in appropriations? If it's prior year appropriations, if it's current year appropriations have already been obligated, then there's no effect. There could be an effect for other reasons. The building's not open. You can't get to the job. There's nobody there to approve your invoice or your task order, et cetera. But none of that is driven by the kinds of factors that would come into place in default. What's instructive, Tom, is look back and see what the plans have been the last few times we've come close to this. 2011 and 2013 are instructive in that regard. And we can look at some of the plans that were in place, even though they were never actually promulgated. Right. So what you're saying now, then, is that the Office of Management and Budget, the White House, ought to start issuing some detailed guidance in the eventuality that sometime in the next, who knows, week, two weeks, three weeks, this happens. Right. I mean, uh, the Secretary of the Treasury has said June 1st could be X date, right, the date at which Treasury wakes up and doesn't have enough money. That doesn't mean they have no money. It means they got whatever came in last night and they have whatever bills are due that day. So the question is, if you don't have enough, which ones do you pay? This is a real tough challenge. What Treasury did in the past, in 2011 and again 2013, was plan to pay, first and foremost, the principal and interest on those T-bills, because you can't have a global economy collapse and everything's based on Treasury bills. But what does that mean not only for contractor invoices? What does it mean for government payroll, for civilian employees and uniformed personnel? What does it mean for Social Security recipients? What does it mean for Medicare and Medicaid recipients? What does it mean for food stamp recipients? Who comes first? Who gets paid first? That's a question we don't know the answer to. How can you plan without knowing the answer to that question? We're speaking with David Berteau, president and CEO of the Professional Services Council, and switching gears to something a little bit more immediate. The emergency or the health crisis has passed in an official way. I love it when they say we're planning for the end of the crisis. I said, wish they could name the hour and date of every crisis to end. We could pronounce them over. But along with that, the vaccine mandate went away in a quiet sort of pitiful death, and that included contractors. So what are the lessons learned here? First of all, the federal health emergency that you referred to did expire midnight, May 11th, so last week. And it was kind of an interesting thing, Tom, because the emergency had to be renewed every 90 days. And it had been being renewed ever since, uh, you know, uh, early 2020. When it came time to renew again, the president decided and actually signed a bill from Congress that helped his decision. We're not going to renew it anymore. So you did have a specific date and time. From a contractor's point of view, there were a host of changes in regulation and procedure that were predicated upon that national health emergency. We saw just a couple of weeks ago the Defense Department went back to 80% progress payments for its major weapon systems, cutting back from 90%, all predicated upon the national health emergency. The vaccine mandates, two executive orders, 14042 and 14043, were both rescinded last week. One applied to federal civilian employees, the other applied to contractors. And so 
Those are now OBE. There are still court cases out there. Whether those fall apart or not, I don't know, because some of those cases were predicated upon something other than the health emergency. So we'll have to see how the courts play out. Right. So in many ways, then, it was a mandate that had not that much health effect that we can see, but it had a whole lot of legal and administrative effect. It did. And there's one particular effect that I think has had very little attention paid to it. And that was the fundamental process by which the acquisition regulation was promulgated. So there was a clause inserted in the federal acquisition regulation that basically said comply with the vaccine mandate. But the clause itself did not specify what that mandate was. Instead, it referred you to a website of the Safer Federal Workforce Task Force. Right. And that website was unaccounted for. It had no letterhead. It had no authority anywhere. It had no designation of who was a responsible agent or official. And it could change at a moment's notice without any notification whatsoever and affect millions of contracts. You know, this is the kind of thing that seems to me to have set a very bad precedent. Not that the FAR doesn't refer to websites elsewhere, because there's plenty of government regulations that are not part of the FAR. For instance, the NIST standard that governs cybersecurity is controlled by NIST. But you know who owns it. You know what process they follow to modify it. You have the chance to comment on it. It may not be under the Administrative Procedure Act, but there's plenty of public input to that. None of that was visible and present in this vaccine mandate. That's something I think that merits view going forward because this may not be the last time we face this. All right. And a final question has to do with something that the court did to intervene in the whole procurement contractor system. And that was say that the GSA was not legally entitled to allow unpriced bids for spots on some of the big GWACs that GSA has been trying to push out the door. And GSA's idea is that the prices would be negotiated at the task order level. That's kind of what the new era of flexibility and less friction in contracting. The court said no. And so what's your take on what this all means? And there's a couple of issues here that weren't directly addressed in that case. That's correct. There's at least four separate kinds of issues here. One is the statutory basis for that GSA approach, which was a section that was in the fiscal year 18 National Defense Authorization Act that GSA's read would permit them to do the unpriced orders at the GWAC level. And it makes sense, Tom, that you can't really predict what your price is until you know what the work is that you're going to be doing. And that comes with the task orders. But if the statutory basis is under question, then point number one is what do you do to change the statutory basis? And that's something that we at PSC are looking at and seeing whether we can get something done in this fiscal year uh, in, in the legislation. The second is it immediately affects the Polaris contract, and bids were submitted on that, Tom, last November. And people have been waiting already six months, and now the whole thing is thrown into turvy, right? And also the Oasis Plus contract. The third thing is what's the nature of joint ventures in the federal government. And that's something that really is all over the place. It needs to be clarified. And the Small Business Administration, particularly for small business joint ventures, SBA will need to step up here. And then the fourth, I think, comes into play, which is how do you actually keep competition going and keep companies in business when protests like this and court cases like this can make you take forever and then you can't even use the bid that you submitted? So all of that needs to be sorted out. David Berteau is president and CEO of the Professional Services Council. As always, thanks so much. You're welcome, Tom. Look forward to the next one. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. 
Nagesh Rao was sitting in New York visiting his family when someone on his team at the Bureau of Industry and Security at the Commerce Department headquarters called him about a large box that had just arrived. They opened it and found about $10,000 worth of Lenovo laptops and Microsoft Surface tablets inside. At that moment, the Bureau Chief Information Officer knew the fraudsters were a little bit too close for comfort. Federal News Network's Jason Miller joins me with how Rao's experience is a stark reminder for federal executives that scammers are coming for them and what they need to do to protect themselves. Jason, tell us more about the scam. A box arrived, and what's next? Basically, what happened to Nagesh Rao is he was whaled. This is a term that is getting, unfortunately, Tom, much more commonly well-known in the private sector, but now it's happening to government people. You've heard of phishing, right, where you know you cast yeah. the wide net and try to catch some fish. Well, now you're going after the whales, right, the big people, the CEOs, the executives, the senior vice presidents. They're called you know, the people with access to money and, and power. And it's very similar to if you ever you know, heard about casinos and they go after the whales, the big spenders. This is all about the same thing. The scammers are going after senior executives because they know that's who holds the power. And for Nagesh, what happened to him was about three to five months ago, he got an email or several emails and some LinkedIn requests about a solicitation that's on the street. Nagesh said to himself, I don't have any solicitations on the street. So after doing some research, they found the fake solicitation. Someone put it together and we have a screenshot of it on federalnewsnetwork.com. And someone had put out a fake RFQ asking for these companies to send who they thought was the Bureau of Industry and Security CIO, some sample laptops and, de- and, and Microsoft Surface tablets. And, and it was something like $50,000 wow. worth of equipment they were looking for. And Nagesh was very out there saying, don't do this. This is fake. He was very active on LinkedIn and other places to really try to stamp this down. And unfortunately, what happened, some small business got caught up. What he thinks happened is they got called from the scammer. The scammer thought it was, you know, Rao and decided to send the laptops and the Surface tablets to an address. But they looked at the address and said, hey, why are they asking me to send it to Atlanta when this is in D.C.? So they decided to better safe than sorry and send it to D.C. And that's when this whole thing really got uh, much, much bigger. So I think this is an ex- one example, but but a Something that's happening bigger and bigger to a lot of agencies and a lot of executives in the private sector. Yeah, so this box got there and there was all this equipment in it. What did they do with it? Well, first thing they did was they called the small business and said, hey, uh, I think you were a victim of a scam. And the small business was like, oh, my goodness, because $10,000 is a lot of money to be sending out. And obviously, if, if they would have sent it to the scammers, they would never have seen the light of day again. So what they did was they, they called them and said, hey, this is wrong. There's no RFQ. And then they said, by the way, we're not going to pay for the shipping that they had initially been charged, but we will send this back to you and you'll pay for that shipping too. And I think the small business was happy enough to get that equipment back and and pay for whatever the charge for the, the, the fees were. But what Rao's trying to do is get the word out much broader, again, through LinkedIn, by talking at the recent ACT IACT Emerging Technology and Innovation Conference about this scam, because this is going to be a bigger problem and a bigger concern. Tom, you and I, and, and, and a lot of people have been in this space for a long time. Remember, there's fake calls from the IRS or the Social Security Administration. But I think this is one of the most po- you know first public attempts where fraudsters tried to pose actually as a senior executive. That's pretty amazing. And so you said this is just a kind of an example, a one-off against Raoul, but sounds like everybody should be on their guard at the executive level in the government. I think because whaling is such an interesting, you know, such a, such an a, a attractive 
group of people to go after these these high-powered executives. And in fact, Raul told me another example. When he used to work at the Small Business Administration, the, the chief of staff was impersonated and they called the CFO over there and said to the CFO, hey, I need you to transfer money to this account. And to the CFO's credit at, at SBA, he said, this isn't right. So he called the chief of staff who said, no, I didn't ask you for that. So he was smart enough to stop it. And I think that's what we're hearing is, is you have to be really on guard against anything that just seems out of the ordinary, a new account. Why would you ask me to do it? Hey, just this once change your, your process. And that's what Rao said. And in fact, that's what Linda Miller, the founder and CEO of audience group, and also a fraud expert, former GAO, former PRAC uh, deputy director. And all of them said, you have to be aware of what's out of the ordinary. And if it seems out of the ordinary, you need to check, double check and triple check and not just do it. And, and Tom, we've seen a lot of anecdotal evidence in the private sector of companies losing hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not millions of dollars because, well, it seemed like my CEO called me and told me to transfer the money and they are my boss and that's what, (laughs) so I listened to my boss. So I think that's why all these senior executives need to be more aware of what's going on. Yeah, I guess at some level, the higher up you are, that kind of a message, be sure to transfer this or that there, would be so specific to you that it's easier to be fooled in some way at that level than perhaps at a lower level where the scams are more generic. You're absolutely right. And then when you add on top of that, as Linda Miller told me, you can go on the dark web or the open deep web and get tools, manuals, help to to do fraud. There's fraud as a service. All of this is out there that can be picked up on. And then on top of that, Tom, and you and I, again, we spent two conferences together, Guy Tech and ActIAC. And what was the big topic? Chat GPT. Could you imagine putting into the chat GPT, hey, write an RFQ that uses the same language as Nagash Rao from Bureau of Industry Security would. And all of a sudden you have this really interesting looking, uh, very <laughs> accurate looking, uh, at least to, to some people, uh, RFQ that really can fool people. And again, Linda Miller talks about, hey, don't just follow people blindly, really ask those questions. And and, and she goes, listen, the, the commerce example really worries me because it's a sophistication of fraud. Sure. And, and that's the real problem. It's, it's the type of scheme that maybe we, we hadn't seen in the past, but all of a sudden it's starting to bubble up. Yes. And with respect to that generative types of AI, I think people are, I think we heard also at that conference too, that it's really good, much better than any other tool at translation. So we used to laugh at the emails from odd countries or from China that had the terrible syntax and spelling errors. But now with the chat GPT types of programs, you could write an elaborate piece of correspondence and it could get translated perfectly. And I think that's a lot of the concern. I mean, we we heard this from people at the conference about grant writing. People who never could win a grant before all of a sudden can use this tool to win grants because they, they have a better sense of how it happens. The opposite is true, too. The bad actors, the threat actors, can also now use it to really take advantage of people. And I think that's why, you know, to, to at least Linda Miller and, and other fraud experts, that's why this is so concerning. And what else did Linda say that people can do to protect themselves at the federal executive level? I think there's a couple things that the federal executives need to be aware of. Number one, they need to be aware of their online presence, whether video or audio or written communications what it's out there. Second, they need to work closely with their cyber teams and using something called cyber threat reconnaissance tools. And this is the idea of you go into the dark web and see who's mentioning Jason Miller or Tom Temin, what the thread of the discussion is, and then monitor how that thread of the discussion is happening. You may understand that there, you know, that there's something happening against you or your organization. As Linda told me, there is no honor among thieves. So they like to talk about themselves and what all their things they're doing quite a bit. And then at the same time, if, if you do find yourself a target of fraud or scammers, 
contact the FBI first and very closely behind that, contact your agency's inspector general. I think the IG would know what's going on and may help to warn other executives. Good advice. And by the way, if anyone wants to whale me, send me a 2023 Electroglide Highway King in orange and birch white and uh, I'll accept it. Tom, you probably just mentioned some sort of motorcycle that only a few people will know. Yes, right. It's a big Harley hog and, you know, my wife won't let me buy a new one, but maybe I'll get whaled and get one that way. Hey, (laughs) (laughs) Federal News Network's Jason Miller. Thanks so much. Always a pleasure, Tom. Check out his story under the Federal Report, now online at federalnewsnetwork.com. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Tammen. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm Tom Tammen. 